I've got this road trip I've always wanted to do, and I want to hop in my car and I want to go Minneapolis, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Obviously, food on demand and franchise times, uh, an industry vet for over 20 years, podcast extraordinaire, and urban and real estate connoisseur, the senior editor at Franchise Times, Tom Kaiser. How you doing, sir? <laughs> Happy to be here, my friend. Thank you for being here. You've watched me grow in the industry a little bit, unfortunately for you, but I have a deep connection to you. Well, I do too. You know, I try to focus on the human side of this industry and you are a real human being, Nabil, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for always being kind and always being such an awesome storyteller for our industry, our much beloved and needed industry. So we're going to start with serious questions, then we'll get softer okay. by the end. All right. All right. That sounds good. All right. What would be your last meal on earth? My last meal on earth. Oh yeah. my God. That's really serious. difficult because I want to choose something that my mom cooks, but yeah. I have to go with this definite hole in the wall Cambodian restaurant in okay. the Twin Cities here and their pork lo mein will melt your face. If I was on death row, that would be it. I love it. So last meal or your death row meal is going to be this Cambodian restaurant that you love. It's yeah? this restaurant okay. called Chang Hang and it's also the best spring rolls I've ever had. And one of the very elderly ladies who works there told me that the reason they are so good is because she's able to stick her hands in boiling water to pull out the rice paper at the right moment. Now that is commitment. Um, that is commitment. And you know, I am now committed to trying it. I've never tried Cambodian food. And I live in New York, so there's no excuse. That's true. There is no excuse. Okay. It's really good. Okay. I'm going to try it soon. Okay. Would love to hear in your own words, just walk us through your journey to today, to who you are today. How'd you get started? You know, like, where did you come from? Would love to understand that. That's a good question. Where did I come from? I, uh, I come from a very tiny, small town in northern Wisconsin is where I grew up and I moved to the Twin Cities in 2000 and graduated from college uh, here at the University of Minnesota in 2004 and immediately became a local newspaper reporter covering three suburbs in the metro here. And I did that for 365 days on the nose. And then I left that job to work in the power sports industry. And so my job was riding ATVs and snowmobiles and motorcycles and boats and writing about that for the enthusiast consumers out there in the market. But at the same time, my previous company, we also covered that industry from a B2B standpoint from the people actually in those industries. And so I did that for 11 years and I still have all of my limbs attached and still functional. And so I'm pretty happy about that. In 2014, you decided to make the switch, complete career switch. Huge change. You know, I loved what I was doing, but I really realized that I had a huge passion for B2B reporting. You know, I really like to cultivate a network of sources and build real relationships with people. And I always considered myself real restaurant people. I spent many, many years in my younger days serving in a variety of situations and I just absolutely loved it. And so I joined our company back then in 14 as a reporter for Franchise Times. And, you know, we cover everything that's franchised, but as you'd imagine, that's a lot of restaurants. And so that is what led to the creation of Food On Demand, just hearing delivery and all of the unique challenges 
that came up related to delivery in those interviews, it was like, I think there's something here and I think it deserves its own publication and its own staff. So we took that idea and we ran with it. If I asked you to pick out one article you wrote for Food On Demand, which one comes to mind first? So I can't remember what year we published it. I want to say it might have been 18 or 19, The Economics of Virtual Restaurants. That was really uh, a fun article to put together. It's probably the longest article I've ever published for Food On Demand. And I talked to just a ton of people from franchisees who had adopted some virtual restaurant brands up to, you know, some of the biggest names and biggest companies that were creating them kind of in that short lived golden era. So I would say that the economics of virtual restaurants was probably what I'm most proud of in terms of articles. Yeah. You know, I was reading and we're doing, we're digging into you. You love traveling. And I know in your NMI business, we have to travel to so many of these conferences. What is it about traveling that you find that we all should do a little bit more of? Well, that's an unusual question to be You know, my previous world in the power sports journey, I was traveling to the most rural places in the country and across North America. And, you know, moving to this industry, I'm spending time in New York and San Francisco and Chicago and lots of Vegas, obviously, lots of Vegas. For Can we do less Vegas, please? Can we do a little uh, less Vegas? I've heard Vegas? that before, Nabil. I, I've heard that loud and clear. And we're, we're open to that. First, you know, I've been traveling so much. And my favorite part about traveling is I get to hang out with Jeff Alexander, Amy Hom, and his folks in the industry. And it's a community I keep on going back to. And... That is like one of the most meaningful part for me in terms of the, the part of the job that makes me travel. I'm wondering what's your favorite part about traveling? Wandering around cities that I don't know very well completely by myself. I mean, I often try to throw an extra day on, except for Vegas. I try to throw an extra day onto my agenda just to wander. And back when I was primarily writing for Franchise Times, I had a column called the Urbane Franchisor. And so whenever I would travel just about anywhere for work, I would throw on an extra day or two and just wander the city, take in, you know, the big sites, the little sites and pay attention to how does this city compare to what I'm seeing in other places? And how does that translate into business opportunities for people in the industry? And so it was, it was very, very fun to do that. I loved it. I had an absolutely kick-ass boss that really encouraged me to do that because she knew some good things would come out of it. And it did. It was a really fun thing to do for, gosh, four or five years. You know, one of the things I love traveling is based on food. Like it has to be like, you know, is, is it a food city? I'm going to Nashville this Sunday to meet a customer and run into Amy Hom. Your favorite You better food go city. to Hattie B's. I've never been and it's on the list. It's happening. Good. It's worth it. What's your favorite uh, food city? Oh, man. I mean, I don't know how you eclipse New York, you know? I, I don't think I can pick anything other than New York City, especially like around the Empire State Building, all those great Korean restaurants. Oh, my God. K-Town, amazing. Yes. When are you coming back to New York next? I have to host you. I am a really good host. I would love to do that. And I'm kicking around an idea of, I've got this road trip I've always wanted to do, definitely a bucket list item for me. And I wanna hop in my car and I wanna go Minneapolis, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. I don't know if I can do that all in one trip, but I really want to. And so I'm hoping I might get to pull the trigger on that sometime in the next month or two. I mean, Philly, Boston, New York is a nice, easy, 
curve that you should totally do and you should meet me in New York when you're here. I would absolutely love to do that. I'll take you up on that. Absolutely. Hey, so you've mentioned pre-pandemic that both ghost kitchens and virtual restaurants were predicted to be huge industry trends on the horizon, right? Yeah. And, and in many ways they have been. But now that we're, let's say, whatever the pandemic was, how has your opinion changed or rehardened in terms of how you see ghost kitchens and virtual restaurants? You know, I almost feel like I've come full circle back to how I felt about those categories when I learned about them for the very first time. Because back then it was like, this is really interesting. This is a fundamental change for the restaurant industry. It won't be easy to get to where you need to be to make those business models work. But I was never as enthusiastic about virtual restaurants and ghost kitchens as some in the investment community. I mean, when we started seeing crazy valuations for some of those players, that was where I was like, whoa, this doesn't feel right at all on like a, you know, gut check basis. But, you know, I have talked a lot about ghost kitchens and virtual restaurants, and I've revisited some of the things that I've written about the categories back then. And, you know, I wouldn't say I feel any sort of like guilt or regret about any, you know, enthusiasm I've shown for those categories, but I'm not ready to write them off. I think that the concepts on a kind of an academic basis, the promise of those categories is real. And I still think we've seen a lot of brands go away. And with virtual dining concepts, they're still in operation, is where they've ended up with this Mr. Beast lawsuit, a failure of the business model or something that's unique to them. What's going on with Kitchen United, that is sad news. That's hard to see. And there's really a human cost to what's gone on there. And is that a failure of the business model or is it more unique circumstances that led to, you know, call it the downfall of Kitchen United? You know, I think that what they were doing in grocery stores with their locations inside of Kroger, that worked. The economics of those locations was positive. I don't think that's what brought us to this moment. And in virtual restaurants, I think any of us in the business can point to experiences we've had, probably negative experiences we've had ordering from virtual brands. And I really think the takeaway there is, and I'm echoing something Meredith Sandlin said to me yesterday that really resonated. You've got to treat these things like actual brick and mortar brands, regardless of the format of how they are delivered or fulfilled. You know, customers and myself included, I'm not looking to order something just because of the cuisine type, like never. I want to know, is this a restaurant some of my friends like? Is this something I've read about and it got me excited? Do I know the chef or the company behind this concept? Because that's something I want to try. You know, you need to have a real background and backstory to a business for it to be legit and just based on cuisine type, that doesn't work. But you know, look at like what Doghouse or Starbird have done. You know, they've created virtual brands that work specifically for their supply chain, specifically for their existing restaurants. And it just helps them kind of broaden their audience, whether that's a different day part, like throwing breakfast into the mix or a cuisine type that is at least compatible with their existing operations. There are things in both categories that did not fail. The concepts there that did not fail. 
And what I think are already facing, the investors are scared off. And I don't know what's going to bring them back into the fold. And maybe they won't be part of the second wave if we see it of virtual restaurants and ghost kitchens. But running on investor dollars with this idea that we're just going to dramatically scale and that scale is going to solve all of our problems. I think we can all say that has not worked. Yeah. I'm so happy you said I'm not ready to write them off and pun intended, write them off. And I think it's really important that we understand that this has happened time and again, which is the first wave is a couple of small concepts, doing it right, doing it well, doing it with quality, treating it like actual hospitality, actual brick and mortar. Like we have some of the groups you've mentioned, one of our customers salted, they do this incredibly well. They just treat it with incredible branding and incredible packaging, incredible food and hospitality. The second wave is our people and money and fuel just being thrown at, you know, we just want to see what sticks, throw everything at the wall. And then there's an overinvestment and an overcorrection. And I think we're just going through the overcorrection, but all that means is there's so much here. It doesn't mean that we need to write the, and the entire industry off. It just means that, you know, like fundamentals are back on the table, which is, does it taste good? Will I order it a second time? Like basic, basic questions. You know, I think that that was especially the problem in the virtual brand category, that repeat rate. I can't think of a lot of virtual brands I ate from that I was anxious to order from again. $5 burger from the parent company of Famous Dave's. That's probably the most positive virtual brand experience I've ever had. And again, that's something that's similar to that Doghouse or Starbird example, where it's things that they created for their own existing network. I think that works. I think other brands that have that similar opportunity and maybe in the casual format category, I think that they should do that. I think that works. What's going on with some of the other brands in the category, I'm not sure if that's going to work out, but I want to see more iteration. I hope this isn't over and I really don't think it is. I hope not. Famous Dave's, we have a mutual investor, Anand Galas. Shout out to him and everything he yeah. and his team do over there. You interview a lot of us, a lot of operators, a lot of food tech CEOs. How can we be a better group of people to interview? Like, what do we do that you enjoy? And what can we do a little bit more of that you wish? Like, <laughs> like, you're what, like, a can you great, guys, what a great you know, question. I love it. I, listen, I'm asking feedback for me, so I hope everyone can learn from it. But what is it that we do well? And what is it that we do? Like, you're like, I oh, don't do that. Like, let's let's focus on this. This is what me and the audience are looking for. Man, I love that question. Be a real human being. It's not all good. It's not all easy. I so often get off the phone with somebody, you know, not you in particular, Nabil, but people who are founders in this industry. I get off the phone with them and I think, my God, I'm not willing to hustle that hard in my own personal life. And how incredible is it that there are people who are willing to set aside so many aspects of their life and dedicate it to their work life. So being a real human being, I think, is important. And that might be a bit of a contradiction for me being a B2B reporter, but I kind of feel like the talking points like use your talking point script for a lighter you know media outlet or something that's maybe more for a general audience for people like you and i who are actually in the industry be open about what's working and what isn't and you know what upsets you and what gets you really fired up just being a real human being goes a really long way and if I'm having a conversation with somebody and it's just all talking points, I'm not going to be very excited to have round two of that conversation because it's like, 
I can go to your website and get your talking points, but who are you as a person? And you know, what is it that gets you really fired up? I mean, you're a guy that gets fired up, Nabil, and that excites me. And I like that. I think you being a real human being is a huge part of your appeal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, you and I were talking offline about the article you wrote and the headline was my favorite headline ever. And I was telling you that this is the best article anyone has ever written about Lunchbox. And you're like, I hope you don't mind. I went a little bit on the personal side. And I said, no, I loved it because unfortunately the CEO and the company are one. And if the CEO has a bad reputation, it connects to the company and vice versa. And so, you know, the headline was boring is sexy, you know, and that's our new approach. I love how off topic we went on that amazing conversation and how many different places we went. And by the end of it, I forgot to hit any of my talking points. So that's why I was making that face. That's all part of the trick, Nabil. I like it. <laughs> I, you just bring me in and then I was just like, I'm like, what happened? Like, where was I? I also just returned from our company's restaurant finance and development conference event, which is, it's awesome for me because I can just attend it. It's not my baby. I don't have to kind of be the point person while I'm there so I can just take it in. But what the points that you were making to me about boring is the new sexy for the next year or so in our industry, I think that tracks with what a lot of people are saying. You know, restaurant operators are overwhelmed and I can't imagine being a smaller restaurant operation where you don't have this big team around you to be making all of the technology decisions that they have to make, that's overwhelming. And I don't wanna put a restaurant operator in a position to feel overwhelmed where like that's the big motivator for them to radically change their business. Like, I don't think that's a good strategy for this moment, whether you're a tech company like Lunchbox or you're a restaurant operator that is still aiming much bigger than where you're at right now. Like we need to help people understand that you can make small incremental improvements to your business and every single thing does not have to be a revolution. I love that. I think that's back to ghost concepts and virtual concepts, the fundamentals. Is the food good? Is the packaging good? Do you have a wonderful story? Who's cooking this food? What's the chef's name? Is this your mom's recipe? I mean, back to the fundamentals of just hospitality, kindness, serving people. I mean, that is the most profitable thing investors will come back to. You mentioned, I hope investors come back to this. They will, they'll come back because food connects us all. And, and you cover this incredible industry and investors will come right back because a lot of artificial capital is leaving. And now like, hey, what are your numbers? I'm gonna go try your restaurant or send one of the analysts to try your restaurant and order food. And we're gonna just go back to the basics of what makes great restaurants and great food. Well, I hope so. You know, I mean, I think it's really wonderful that we haven't seen delivery volumes cratering or anything like that. And in this market that we've had these last couple of years, that very well could have happened. But I, I think we now know pretty clearly consumers are absolutely hooked on the convenience of delivery and that's not going anywhere. And, you know, I think there are a lot of unfortunate kind of external factors that have really impacted some of the companies, some of the big innovators in this space. But I mean, the possibilities are endless on an investment standpoint when you look at how large the food service market is. It's absolutely huge. And that's what gets me really fired up is talking about how are we going to change the world and change how our built environment and our cities function? I mean, that is still a core part of what I love about food on demand in this industry in general is 
there are still big moonshot things that have not happened here in the United States. I mean, drone delivery, a lot of people are like, get real, like we don't need to hear about drones right now. We've got a hundred other fires to put out before we get to that stage. And of course the regulations aren't in place for that in this country yet either, but that's still coming. That is still a world changing thing that's happening before us in other parts of the world. And that's still coming for us. I think it's going to be probably more than five years, but less than 10. And you know, it's hard to get excited about something that's that far out, but it's coming and it's going to be a really, really big deal for restaurants, for consumers and the way that our world like looks and functions. And I just, I love that, Nabil. I get really fired up about it. Well, Tom, I have been so excited to turn the tables around and interview you and hear from you and hear your thoughts. I knew it was going to be a delight, but it did not disappoint. Thank you so much for joining Power Lunch and spending some time with us. And unlike any or most of our guests, I think what you do is so important, which is you give attention to tiny companies and give them hope and give them real estate in, this, in the digital world that you've built. I think you're doing incredible work and I'm just a big fan and I wanted to thank you so much from the industry. Well, thank you from the bottom of my heart, Nabil. I really appreciate that and I'm grateful to be where I am. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. Uh, talk to you soon. See you in New York.